everybody, welcome, welcome here to a very special episode of uh, Crypto Voices. It is show 100, uh, and it's also coincidentally the four-year anniversary of the show as well, released on uh, January 9th. That means January 9th, 2017 was the first uh, podcast, um, and also January 9th was uh, the date that Satoshi Nakamoto released the client, the software of Bitcoin uh, to the world. So um, it's just me and uh, my old buddy, Fernando Ulrich today here to do, uh, to do a show. Uh, Fernando, how's it going, man? Hey, Matthew. Long time no see. It's been a while since we last recorded here together. Yeah, yeah, man. Good to good to have you on for this. Uh, sort of limped to a hundred episodes, as I'm sure, uh, in fairness, our uh, listeners might have noticed. Uh, no doubt, 2020 was uh, disrupting for many, and um, I'm well aware that we recorded uh, less than the uh, than the average flow that we've done in the past uh, in 2020. A lot of reasons for that. Maybe we can get into, but um, regardless. Uh, we're here today for, yeah, episode 100 and, uh, glad to just share it with you, buddy. Um, you know, recording this actually on January, uh, 7th, we'll release it on the 9th, but, um, yeah, January 7th, uh, not too much going on in the world right now. Is there, what do you think? Yeah, it's been kind of quiet. I mean, <laughs> it's the craziest uh, bull market and it's uh, it's a bull market everywhere, not just in crypto, not just in Bitcoin. We just had this crazy 2020 with the pandemic, the crash in the financial markets in March. Uh, we just had the Capitol Hill yesterday being taken over by what some people are calling an insurrection. Doesn't sound like an insurrection, doesn't seem like one, but anyway, I, I guess it, something like this hadn't happened since 1814, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, people breaking in and going inside the Capitol Hill. So yeah, <laughs> crazy moments to, to say the least. The Capitol Hill uh, meltdown, you know, Hunger Games style, uh, you just, if you thought that, you know, 2020 going into 2021 could have just been any more insane. I mean, I was just following it last night on Twitter as I was falling asleep. And like, I normally <laughs> exactly. don't follow active news on Twitter as I'm falling asleep. Uh, as I'm sure listeners know, not too, not as active as you, Fernando, but I mean, I just, I couldn't stop watching it. It was just insane to see that happening. And yeah, as you said, I mean, they, uh, you know, true uh, sedition or insurrection or whatever it was uh, doesn't typically happen. Happen if you're just sort of like lounging in congressmen's and congresswomen's yep. chairs and uh, taking selfies, uh, does it? <laughs> but I mean, just just insane. Bizarre. I mean, just an yeah. insane time that we're living in. I mean, this is really it, man. I mean, uh, you know, for our hardest of hardcore listeners. Uh, who know that Fernando and I met um, 12 years ago in uh, in Spain at a, this free market event in uh, Europe hosted by the Mises Institute. Um, I mean, I started reading about free market, you know, economics, uh, being a bit more conservative with my financial strategies and, you know, gold, silver, whatever. It was the first year of Bitcoin, of course, uh, 2009. But I, I started reading about that you know, really exactly when the financial crisis occurred, just piqued my uh, 
my intellectual curiosity with all that. Same, same with me. Yeah, and pretty much the same. Yeah, with me. and I mean, this is. I, I don't know if we, if it's just been ever clearly more clearly painted, but I mean, this is it, man. Like we we have been reading about this, thinking about this. I just never could have imagined that uh, the way that it all went down. Uh, you know, the negative debt. Uh, the endless budgets. It, it, it is going down, right? I mean, it's it, it hasn't collapsed yet. I mean, the whole thing is going down as we talk. But uh, for me, to me, it was pretty much the same as you. Uh, I started reading about Austrian economics, about money, banking, central banking back in 2007, 2008. And I mean, the, the way that everything has played out in the past year, the huge debasement and deliberate debasement of money as the standard central bank policy throughout the whole world in a coordinated fashion. Wow, I, I, I don't think I saw that coming. I mean, it's just unbelievable. The monetary policies adopted by the Federal Reserve, by the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of England, I mean, every developed central bank in the whole world. Like It, it is the de facto policy of every central bank to print as much as possible. And that's the, the their promise. I mean, this is what they're saying. We will do whatever it takes. And it is taking Bitcoin to the moon. I mean, as we speak, it's almost 40,000 US dollars. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, famous speech by Mario Draghi, former ECB head five, six years ago. We'll do whatever it takes. It was actually in 2012. Oh, was it 2012? I mean, it's already in 2012. First the sort of, uh, actually, it wasn't even the first, the start of the Greek the Greek crisis, but one of the one of the it was just you're just after yeah. it had just started yeah. the European sovereign crisis was 2011, and yeah, whatever it takes. Yeah, I mean, but all of it, like you know, especially I think addressing our younger listeners and uh, certainly a lot of them, uh, you know, trying to educate yourself, listening to various podcasts, reading a lot. I'm sure, you found Austrian economics as well as we have, but um, just sort of the uh, you know, slowly and then all at once. I mean, for me, it was really the uh, the pandemic. I mean, I could never have predicted that True. everything, like the way that it has all unfolded, the way that, you know, something like Bitcoin, which I'm watching right now is hovering very close to $40,000 a coin, uh, you know, gold and silver up close there all to their all time highs, golds in particular but certainly not performing as well as Bitcoin, but just everything, the, the negative uh, interest rate debt, the endless money printing, the fiscal deficits, which just there's no end in sight. I did not predict at all, could have never imagined that it would have been at the hands of a global pandemic. The one thing that I've always kind of predicted was that all these central bank policies that pretty much, they didn't start after the financial crisis, but they, they got a boost. I mean, the printing of money, buying a large uh, scale, the large scale purchases of assets on the open market and every kind of asset from treasuries to mortgage backed securities to stocks to corporate bonds, ETFs, you name it. I mean, it got a boost after the financial crisis. Yeah. And I always predicted, I mean, it, it's, it is a irreversible policy. 
they can only go further and further until, let's call it a, an absolute collapse of the currency. Some, the crack-up the, boom. The crack-up boom, something like this. Uh, possibly, but they can keep it, they, they can kick the can down the road further and further without precipitating this collapse. But then comes 2020 and the pandemic and the desperation by virtually every policymaker from the executive branch to the legislative branch, the judiciary, I mean, everyone in every country spent. I mean, that, that was the name of the day. Spend, you have to spend because we cannot make, we cannot afford to have people... Uh, quote-unquote suffer so let's get people money checks i mean we get we got i mean 2020 we got printing of money massive deficits like we've never seen since the the second world war we've seen helicopter money we've seen universal basic income I mean, what else? What else is left in their toolkit? <laughs> i mean it's and of course this made Every central bank print money like never before. So this, the Fed increased just in 2020 its balance sheet by o over three trillion dollars, three trillion from four, four trillion to seven trillion in 2020. It's all it's almost all over 7.5 trillion as of now. And ECB was the same. And I I think in a way. Uh, this uh, I kind of predicted this would happen, but not as fast and with this much intensity, and also almost in a fearless manner, they're doing it. And it it's it's it seems that all of the collateral effects they haven't shown up yet. So it seems these these policies they are working so far. So. But anyway, that's why we have all these assets going up in tandem. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And uh, one more thing just to add to the list, there's no reserve ratio in the United States anymore. True. Since March. True. Uh, I mean, that's that. I, I'm not saying I know what the right reserve ratio is, but it's almost to the point of hilarity where you have <laughs> the central bank, which is supposed to uh, you know, control inflation and uh, control unemployment, but the very thing which they say they're there to protect, which is the safety of depositors, they have now dropped as in conjunction with all of the stimulus checks and helicopter money and the you know bond purchases and, and all the like, and soon to be probably stocks, I'm sure, to match Japan and Switzerland. Yep. Uh, they have dropped since March the reserve ratio to zero. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, some, some central banks in Europe, I think the ECB and the Bank of England and perhaps even the Bank of Japan, they already didn't have uh, reserve requirements. It was already set at zero for maybe over a decade. So it was just left for the, the Fed to do the same. But I mean, since they have the, it's not, it's not even implicit, it, it is an explicit put the central bank put Greenspan. the famous Greenspan put, then the Bernanke, then Yellen, and now with Jerome Powell, they are promising to do whatever it takes. So if the markets go down, if uh, financial conditions tighten, they will print as much money and buy whatever they have to do. And but but it's a it is a, a monetary experiment. It's a grand monetary experiment, and it started. 
in in this fashion after the fall of Bretton Woods, after the the closing of the gold window by Richard Nixon. This is it's going to be 50 years now, half a century. Yep. I mean, this, the the monetary system we have, it's gonna um, it. This 2021 is the 50th anniversary of the fall of the Bretton Woods yep. system agreement. In August. And, and I, I don't think they can say it's working fine <laughs> or as they imagine. And yeah, <laughs> crazy, crazy times. And speaking of uh, asset prices in all asset classes going to all-time highs, uh, as you mentioned, uh, isn't that strange? You know, I mean, uh, it used to be uh, when things were relatively, you know, normal, let's say uh, central banking policy pre-2008, uh, even though that was post-Brenton Woods collapse, it used to be that, you know, you would have a risk off and a risk on trade, right? So if there was geopolitical uncertainty or wars or local conflicts or whatever, uh, investors would flee to the dollar to safe havens and they would go out of risk on assets, equities, they would go out of that. Now you have events like yesterday where literally the capital of the United States is being stormed by people taking <laughs> selfies <laughs> and the markets aren't batting an eye. I mean, what is what is happening there? Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's it seems as if everyone in the markets is oblivious to whatever is going on outside the markets, in the real economy, in politics, in geopolitics. I mean, let's, whatever is going on with the US and China and China and, and Southeast Asia, China and Japan and Europe. I mean, there's there are a lot of things to be concerned of. But the markets, they just don't care. They don't seem to care. And in a way, I mean, th this is what central banks want people to do. No doubt. They want people to take more risks. They want people to buy more assets, to take more credit, to take more debt, and to buy more assets and to invest in real estate and, and spend more. Even, I mean, whatever, is, whatever people can do to... Uh, stir up inflation. That's what central banks want. And it's kind of ironic because on the public health side, everyone is telling everyone to take as much precaution as possible. Wear masks, wash your hands with, uh, I, I, here we say alcohol, I think it's the same, isn't it? Uh, disinfectant. Dis, uh, disinfectant, we call it here alcohol, 70% alcohol, but disinfectant, wash, wash your hands, Sanitize. keep your distance, yeah. don't go to where there's a lot of people. So take care, take a lot of care. But on the financial markets, it's the complete opposite. It's don't take care, be as reckless as you can with your money. And if you run out of money, take more debt at your nearest bank branch and go to the financial markets. This is what central banks wants us, want us to do. <laughs> it's insane. This is really interesting. I just want to hit home this point again about, you know, said at the beginning, like, you know, are we finally here? Because, um, you know, for years, you know, when I was learning about this stuff and sending friends and family books and buying gold and custodying gold. And, you know, before I got into Bitcoin as well, um, you know, just becoming a very, even though my capital is quite limited, you know, it's 20 something learning about this stuff. But I mean, 
I, I was very, very risk averse to you know trading in the markets based on this stuff. And I remember even a couple of years ago, Fernando, you were writing a piece. Um, you know, I think you had it on the Mises Brazil blog. It was like the fifty crazy things and unprecedented things that central banks and and just governments in general were doing uh, these days. But that was four or five years ago. And I'm, I say this not, right. you know, I just say that because because it was crazy then. It was crazy in two thousand eight. You know, the monetary base double, tripled, quadrupled in those subsequently years after 2008. Um, it's always been crazy, but like for years, you know, I started to give talks about inflation and, uh, you know, even before the podcast, just trying to educate people, students from my university, um, the stuff I was doing with work, all this stuff. I've always been, you know, sort of financially, uh, had that financial mindset as you have, as our listeners have. Um, I would always answer, you know, I'm afraid to say there comes a point, right? Because the discussion always goes to when you start piling all these things in the negative column, you have very few things in the positive column. I was very uh, reticent, very hesitant to say, you know, there comes a point like this, it, it's going to happen here or there. Like I heard all the false predictions, you know, 2012, you know, mind calendar and all these just insane things that would never come true. And even if they were grounded in fact, like your article was, which was four or five years ago, yeah, uh, or maybe three or four, I mean, this is it. Like I, I cannot say, yep. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna now basically change my sense, man. This is it, like it I don't know. <laughs> it, it could certainly get worse. It, it could certainly, you know, we could have a collapse of global economies, supply chains, everything else. But I mean, if you wanna talk about a war-like economy, I, I don't know, you're gonna to have to redefine things if we're not gonna say that like, this is not normal. This is just, this is, we are here. I, I cannot, I cannot believe it. I cannot believe it. I cannot believe that it was brought in by a pandemic, uh, which is really masking all of the bad things that were already happening uh, by our governments before. That's a very good point because the level of fragility in the system, it was already evident prior to the pandemic. So when we enter 2020, now few people in the financial markets remember this, I mean, and it's uh, one year ago. But when we entered 2020, the Federal Reserve was already lowering rates and injecting hundreds of billions of dollars into the banking system to stabilize interest rates. This was prior to the pandemic. And then come February and March and the crash in, in the in the most of the indices, and then the Fed lowered to zero and purchased even more uh, bonds and, and treasuries and MBS. But that was before the pandemic. So the fragility was already there. And then after the pandemic, uh, or after it started, with all this uh, wreckage in the real economy, so businesses, they are going bust. If they haven't already uh, decreed bankruptcy, they will in a few months. The, the ones that cannot survive in this kind of environment. But we're still living in a kind of year of exception as usually banks would have to set aside a few billion dollars for the, how do you call the people that are not paying their, their, their debt? I forgot the name in English now. Delinquency. So delinquency, 
delinquency rates, they usually go up by, by now, but banks, they don't have to worry about it at this moment because there are some laws or some policies in place that allow banks to not provision, to set aside more reserves in case delinquency rates go up because they should go up. We're still in the trying to recover from an economic crisis which has not ended. This is important. The, the, when we, the way we understand the business cycle, recessions, downturns, the whole process between laying off people, uh, downsizing your business, paying off debt, trying to uh, work your balance sheet in a more in a sounder financial position, it takes a few months, perhaps even more than a year. And this process, it hasn't finished yet. And But financial markets are perhaps ignoring it or perhaps they're going along with the Federal Reserve and the other central banks, which are telling them, go ahead, take risk because, I mean, there's, there's no downside to your bets. If something happens, we're here, we're going to inject more liquidity. So in the end, it's as we started this, this conversation, Matthew, this is the debasement of money. And that's why central banks, they really have to revisit even the definition of inflation and the, their, even their, their own targets for inflation. Because just have the CPI or the core CPI, or in the case of the Fed, it's the, it's the PCE, the core PC that they use, the PC that they use as a target for their, uh, the, the index for their inflation targeting. They have to revisit the whole thing. If you open up, if you break down the, the CPI and the PC, you will see that inflation in food and energy, this is going up, especially in food. So people, they are already uh, feeling this, the loss of purchasing power. In Brazil, just to give you an idea, so people, usually people don't have any news about Brazil, but our CPI is going to finish the, the calendar year 2020 over 4%. Mm. That's the CPI. But if you take a look inside the food CPI, it's over 15% wow. in 2020. So, I mean, money is being debased and this debasement is manifested not only in CPI, in products and services, but also in the prices of financial assets. Uh, wages now are buying much less S&P 500 than, than they could 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, it's a good point. And they're definitely, I mean, certainly the educated listener knows there are many indexes, indices in the Western world, you know, the Chapwood Index, uh, John Williams Shadow Stats is another good one I like. Uh, you know, if you look at the hedonics, the variables, the old ways that they used to measure inflation, uh, much, much higher than it currently is. And I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but you talked about, you know, what it should be like with businesses restructuring. And yeah, I mean, with this, First of all, with this virus, I mean, I didn't even mention it. we were talking more about the markets, macro, you know, preparedness, you know, being risk averse. But yeah, the, it, like we're just, it, it's, I think we're just, I, I cannot see how we're not just starting um, the whole retail service sector. It's, it's been eviscerated. Um, you cannot just tell me that a couple thousand dollar checks are going to repump 
that bubble yep. this time. Maybe they do for a little bit, for a couple months, whatever, but you've got to keep doing it again and again and again. And if this vaccine doesn't work the way that they plan, and you know, that's a whole other rabbit trail as well. I mean, I just do not, uh, this, is, this is it. I mean, this is warlike uh, supply chains really could be disrupted. And it's not anything that I am happy about or feel good that Bitcoin's rising because of this. It's just, it's just, it's really, really sad. But a quick note as well regarding the prices and how it should work. I mean, Rothbard wrote about this. Many free market economists wrote about this. Like, yeah, in good times and in bad times, the purchasing power of your money, of your savings, of your hard-earned wealth should rise because you know when businesses produce more and they're more competitive, they can be competitive on the margin, right? Their costs uh, can go down. The, the, the prices they sell at can go down, but their costs are also going down. So that's why they can be competitive in a, you know, a gently falling free market, uh, lightly deflationary environment. But then if things go wrong, prices should fall as well. I mean, if you have too much debt, if you misjudge the market, if you didn't play it right with your supply chain and your producers and your consumers didn't buy your products as much as you liked, like you're gonna have to devalue your assets in that case as well. You're, you had too high of a book value. You should be devaluing um, your assets. Your loans should be written off. You might have to go bankrupt. You may have to sell your assets off to more competitive uh, uh, competitor, a more competitive person in the market or industry in the uh, uh, company in the market, you know, player in the market, however you want to say it. <laughs> Prices can and should fall in both good times and bad times in the free market. And that's just completely opposite of, you know, the MMT and just the Keynesianism and just all the voodoo economics that we've been hearing for 50 years. That's the other one that we got in 2020, MMT, yeah. Modern Monetary Theory. I mean, when when the year started, there was just perhaps a fringe idea. And then in two weeks, let's do it. I mean, they didn't call it MMT, but it is. I mean, whatever you want to call it, it is MMT. And it's being done. But, I mean, you mentioned all the, the literature that you had when you started in your journey in Austrian economics, money, banking, and how many economists, they predicted the, the collapse of the dollar, the end of the currency, it's, we're going to lose reserve currency status and all these things. I have a, a whole bookshelf here full of these books, all of them. And I think what most of them got wrong was the longevity of a fiat, a fiat currency or the longevity of the dollar and how it can survive, it can muddle through, even though it's fundamentally flawed, it can still muddle through. We're not seeing hyperinflation and I think it's very difficult to witness hyperinflation unless we really have a complete loss in faith in the Federal Reserve and uh, the dollar, but I don't see it happening in now or next year or maybe not even in two or three years. So it can, it, it can muddle through and it can just depreciate in value. And since every other currency is also depreciating, it's not as, as if every central bank and government uh, around the world was uh, acting in a prudent manner, not inflating their own currencies. 
everyone is doing the same. Yeah. It's just a matter of degree. So now it's five or 10% more the Fed. Next year is going to be five or 10% more the Bank of Japan or Bank of England or the ECB. It doesn't really matter, but everyone is doing the same. They're all in the same boats. And so, yeah, I mean, we can, we can see the dollar depreciate in every other currency for longer without we waking up one day and wow, the dollar collapsed. This is perhaps the collapse part is something economists and the these uh, doom forecasters, they should have, I don't know, studied more or tried to detail more how it could unfold because I don't think it's just so sudden. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was uh, was getting at, right? I mean, I'd heard it again and again and again. And even after, you know, you start learning this stuff like four years, like, you know, back in like 2012, you know, okay, there's a Eurozone crisis again, this crisis, but like life goes on. And um, that's that's kind of what I was getting at. And, and definitely now, I'm not saying now, like dollar collapse imminent, gonna happen tomorrow. <laughs> if we've learned anything from last year, like you just can't predict how and why and what circumstances, you know, the economy might change. But what I am saying, which I think is pretty much indisputable now uh, with, the, with the, just the absolute massive decline in GDP, living standards, quality of life that, you know, this pandemic has brought upon us. Uh, there have been just so many people, as, as we've said, who has, have missed this. But what I think is interesting uh, Neil Ferguson said uh, at a panel, I don't know, some, I, I can't even remember the conference he was speaking. He said this a couple years ago. And it was just this sort of the social justice warrior stuff was starting up, the Antifa, these types of things. And he said, you know, I'd always wondered, you know, when I was writing about these things, you know, and he's a, he's a, he's a well-grown man, <laughs> Neil Ferguson, right? I mean, he's, <laughs> he's in his late 50s, I think, yep. when he when he's, uh, was making this statement. Um, you know, he's like, I could never sort of, understand or even realize, you know, just the natural cyclical nature of things like, you know, our father, like in Britain, right? His father went through like really much harder times than Americans went through as far as energy prices, gas prices, you know, Britain's really, you know, rationing on the, on the electricity in the seventies, uh, Vietnam, obviously, uh, for the U S but like never understood. And then of course his grandfather, you know, like the great war, world war two, the great war, as I call it over here, He's like, I never understood like why I didn't really have to fight that. And then like, you know, now, now, I, now I see it. Like here, this is our, this is our battle. And that, that is a battle that is one and, and you know, little, little sort of things bubble up here and there and they, they have and again and again. And obviously they exploded last year. But I mean, on top of that, just like the sheer, the sheer economic decimation that we've seen. I mean, I don't, I don't see how you can, how anyone can really argue that like, you know, the system has saved us and again, throw in the pandemic throughout the pandemic. I mean, uh, we were not we were not prepared to deal with something like this. And this is this is definitely it. I mean, this is like this is wartime stuff. It's unbelievable. Yeah, the English pubs closed their doors for the first time ever. I mean, it seemed not even during the Black Plague, the Black Death, or yeah. World War. Yeah. One or two, they never closed their, their doors, but they did last year. And I think they're closed right now because the UK is under another strict lockdown. And speaking of Neil Ferguson, for the, this was perhaps one of the important, the high notes for Bitcoin, especially during 2020, 
was the number of respectable people, renowned people from the financial markets, from academia, from not so much economists. I mean, the economists, they're still lagging behind and they will forever. But Neil Ferguson, as a, a historian and very famous historian, people are getting it. And I think the pandemic and the response by the central banks was the big catalyst for people to maybe reflect and come to the conclusion that, well, perhaps the idea of having a body of people, a government or a central bank dictating what interest rates and how much money we should have and how much money we can inflate and inject in the system, perhaps this is not such a great idea. And people are looking for alternatives. So for me, that was a, I think it was symptomatic of the change in perception we had in 2020. That, I think this is one of the high notes we had for Bitcoin in, and crypto in general. A lot of people from all the, all th throughout this, the political spectrum, ideological spectrum, many people recognizing, well, this is for you and this this technology does have a reason. It's a reason for existence and perhaps there's something good in it. Hey, just a quick break to remind you that this show is sponsored by HODL HODL. HODL HODL is the fastest and most secure way to buy or sell Bitcoin without verification and with the lowest fees on the market. Trade in any country in the world for any payment method and any currency. So go ahead and sign up with the link hodlhodl.com slash join slash crypto voices and get a discounted trading fee forever. Hodlhodl.com slash join slash crypto voices. When you sign up, you won't regret it. Uh, thanks again to Max, Roma, and everybody over at Hodl Hodl for the support. And uh, a reminder, they also organize the very well-run and fantastic Baltic Honey Badger Bitcoin Conference every fall in Riga. So head on over to hodlhodl.com slash join slash crypto voices. Thanks again, and back to the show. Yeah, completely agree. That's a very good way to put it. Very good way to put it. I'll do a little bit more, I think, towards the end of the show. I want to focus a little bit on Bitcoin now. But I do, I do really feel that, yeah, I mean, after, after this price rise that we had at the end of, of 2020, just the end of last year, um, you know, so many major hedge fund managers, financial gurus, Neil Ferguson himself being one of them, uh, who came out in line, you know, fell in line with the possibly a good idea with Bitcoin. Yep. Everybody, I think, except Ray Dalio. Ray Dalio kind of said he missed it, but I haven't heard him give a full case. Yet, but I, I, I'm sure, I'm sure his kids or so, our grandsons, they, they have it and their grandchildren. I'm yeah. sure they have it. Yeah, exactly. And obviously Peter Schiff, but we're not talking about him. No reason to. <laughs> yeah, this is a lost cause. <laughs> <laughs> I like him, but this is a lost cause. Right, right. But at least his son, Spencer, he's uh, sharp on, on the issue and I, I know he's a hodler. Yeah, that is that is very entertaining, I have to say. And, uh, <laughs> and, and kudos to him. Kudos to him for trying to educate his father on that, even publicly. Yeah. But um, So not even hedge funds and, and some uh, brilliant investors, but also insurance companies. We had Massachusetts Mutual investing in Bitcoin. I mean, this is huge. 
We also had Jeffrey's investment, and I think it's uh, Chris something. I forgot his name. Uh, he's a head of equity in Jeffrey's investment. And on their pension fund portfolios, they are reducing the... Chris Wood. Chris Wood, exactly. They are reducing the exposure to gold and allocating more toward Bitcoin. I mean, this is also huge. And these people, they are, they are long-term hodlers. I mean, they're, they're for the long game. So this is something I, I, I wanted to, to make sure people remember these uh, news, these highlights of 2020. But another, I think maybe we just spoke about the, what I call the other side of the coin, that is fiat currencies and, the, and their flaws. But maybe we can talk about uh, Bitcoin, the network, uh, the, the protocol, and even how is people perceiving uh, Bitcoin nowadays? Is it just money? Is it a payment system? Is it the ultimate asset, as I like to call it? I mean, it seems to me the narrative for Bitcoin as digital gold, as the settlement layer, as the settlement asset, it seems to be gaining more traction than the other alternatives. What do you think? Absolutely. Uh, as you know, we do the uh, monetary base update every quarter. I've been updating it uh, for a couple things, you know, for the LeBitConf conference um, a couple weeks ago, a month ago, end of December, um, and, or uh, sorry, early December. And um, yeah, as we said, I mean, I think it's evident in all the institutions, you know, Michael Saylor, I mean, so many uh, people using it as a treasury asset now. It's definitely, like, the, the words can change, right? Like treasury asset, ultimate asset of settlement. Uh, I still would like to see more people grasp on this idea. I know it's tough if you're not like really looking into the money supplies, uh, you know, many days a week like we are. But uh, yeah, it just doesn't compare and it still won't compare as, as many as, 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 much as so many people want to argue about this pro and con to Bitcoin, uh, you know, in favor and against Bitcoin on Twitter or anywhere, uh, it's just not uh, fundamentally an asset that functions, um, you know, like a check or like a, uh, you know, like even like a Venmo payment. And I'm not saying that you can't do that with, you know, the Lightning Network and so on and so forth. But in its core, you know, behind the protocol, what you're talking about, um, it's an asset like basic money. And uh, I can even quote uh, Fernando exactly the where we stand with basic money um, today. Uh, it's the two tweets ago on my uh, profile. It was uh, on January 3rd, actually, on the, um, <laughs> as you can see it, not tweeting every day like some people, but January 3rd. <laughs> Uh, 12 years of Bitcoin since Satoshi uh, launched the Genesis block. Um, we have against all the monetary bases, Bitcoin is, uh, it's literally, it's, the, it's a record. It's the seventh largest currency in the world. If you measure it against, you know, the Euro, the Yen, the dollar, the UN, the pound and the Swiss franc in that order. Those are the top six now. And then it's Bitcoin. It's past the Indian rupee, yep. the Canadian dollar, the Russian ruble, South Korean won, the other sort of mid-major currencies. Yep. It only has a Swiss franc and the uh, at $44,000 a coin roughly and the British pound at $60,000 a coin roughly as sort of the two mid-major currencies left. And then you just have those big four. And people just, they, they, they they just love to talk about, you know, M1 or M2 and all these different things. But like economically, it just doesn't work well like that. It's 
the, the, the fundamental traits of Bitcoin are, are as sort of this monetary base, ultimate asset, as you say, of settlement. There's nothing higher in the financial system than the monetary base for settling value. And there's nothing higher than, you know, the on-chain UTXO and Bitcoin for settling uh, value. So this is, this is the way you look at it. And yeah, after 12 years, we're sitting at number 12, uh, we're sitting at number seven in the world. It's truly, it's truly remarkable. Yeah, we've come a long, long way. And I, of course, we, everyone who is listening to us now knows that we are here for the long run. And I think whatever I, I thought about the technology back in 2013, when I first encountered it and when I first understood it, I mean, I've, I'm even more convinced now of its advantages, its utility, and, and price is just a natural consequence of it all. Might we have a correction in a week or a month? I think it's, it's plausible, perhaps likely. I mean, we've been... Yep, perhaps likely. <laughs> perhaps likely already. So, but I mean, it's, it's how markets uh, work. And the thing is, uh, this year, it's not only Bitcoin. I'm looking at my screen now and everything is flashing green except my Tesla puts, everything else, <laughs> it's flashing green. So yeah, <laughs> it's uh, tread carefully. It's a uh, irrational exuberance might be at play with a little help from central banks. Well, this is the thing. And again, you know, it, um, moving to gold and silver as well. I mean, uh, I won't go through the, the next slide on there, but the same, same tweet in January 3rd. Uh, at Bitcoin now, roughly 40,000, 39,000. That is roughly matching the s available silver in the world yep. for the first time ever. You know, all jewelry, all bullion uh, in the world for silver. It's truly uh, incredible. And again, for some asset that, you know, 12 years ago just came out in, in a white paper and has been, you know, vehemently debated and criticized and praised in so many ways, I just think it's incredible to look at it, you know, just to look at the landscape from that. Um, um, perspective, but uh, nonetheless, what I wanted to ask you was: we have um, again an a slight allusion to what we talked about before, right? Like prices, prices they can go up, they can go down. Stocks go up, they go down. But why is it? Why is it, Fernando, that a day after literally the capital was? besieged by, you know, selfie takers. Uh, <laughs> selfie -takers. Why is it that the, that the, the risk off trade is not what we thought it was? Why is it that people are just sitting in equities? I mean, are we, are we truly in silly land or are we, are we just back to what I always used to say and we never know, it can just get crazier and crazier and crazier. Or is that just like you said before, is that just what they want and they're getting their wishes? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, when, whenever we're in a, a bull run, as we've been in the past nine months, eight months, and we get close to bubble-like uh, levels in valuations, in prices, I mean, from almost every metric you look at, it's the, it's the top. We're, we're hitting the top. I mean, people get more complacent. They don't care. Bad news is ignored. And people carry on with their trades. And I think it's it's one of the symptoms of perhaps the uh, 
we're getting close to the top, perhaps. I mean, wouldn't there be profit taking? Wouldn't there be consolidation? I mean, if you had an event like uh, yesterday, wouldn't you at least expect this thing to drop, you know, a couple percent? <laughs> it's just screaming again. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> it defies perhaps logic. <laughs> yeah. Well, markets can always uh, surprise you, no doubt. But but I think I think the core of it is what you said before. It's it's this is what they want, and they're achieving it mm-hmm. uh, in unstable times. Um, you know, and again, in free market money, uh, free market economies, you will have prices fall in good times and in bad times, and. Um, that's just not the game that they want to play. It's not the game that the entrenched uh, folks want to play. And now regarding Bitcoin, the whole 2017 drama with uh, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin SV and all the other <laughs> Bitcoin Gold, uh, shitty <laughs> forks or shitty. Yeah, I mean, we had some, uh, I think Bitcoin Gold was kind of a scam, kind of. I mean, there are <laughs> almost There's all Bitcoin of them. Bitcoin private are, anyway. as well, which they there uh, was Bitcoin private. They yeah. And Coinmetrics caught them on uh, the money supply there. Yeah, there was Bitcoin made of whatever. But uh, I mean, you've seen the price of all of them. I mean, they just collapsed in relation to Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin Cash was almost lower than zero point ten uh, Bitcoin zero zero point zero ten Bitcoins. I think so. I think this the the past three four years has been a resounding success for a Bitcoin in this regard, for all the the maintenance and the upgrades for Bitcoin Segwit and the one thing I'm I'm still missing and is the one thing that makes me not lose my sleep, but makes me worried is we need Taproot or something like upgraded and activated in, on the protocol as soon as possible. And this is the one thing that is missing. Bitcoin on the base layer private to be more private and thus more secure. Yep. And uh, as far as I understand, you know, all of the uh, activation uh, protocols themselves are up, to, up for debate. You know different ways to activate it. Yeah. Uh, based on 2017's UASF drama, uh, that's not going to be the preferred way to activate this time. No, not at all. I mean, that was just insane. Yeah. So we'll but, see. Uh, but I think this 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 time around, there seems to be more support and less of a controversy surrounding this this upgrade. But anyway, I think it's absolutely necessary for the long-term survival of the protocol. But do you have any thoughts about, uh, I know Brazil is extremely uh, overreaching or far-reaching, I guess, when it comes to, uh, you know, the regulation of your financial assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Europe, it is as well, extremely, extremely regulated. It's getting worse and worse every day. I think Americans don't quite understand. I mean, they're just like mostly trading dollars and Bitcoin. Of course, you know, a bunch of other they don't. altcoins, but they, uh, they're mostly going back and forth between dollars and they don't really know the massive capital controls and just compliance that are coming in, even, even to relatively free-floating currencies. Does that scare you with some of the privacy potential upgrades? Because I even got an email, I think it was from Abra, you know, we've had Bill Barhide on the show before, 
they are saying, you know, they're delisting Zcash, Monero, and Dash due to the new uh, regulations in the United States that are coming up yep. on anti-money laundering, KYC, you know, again and again and again. Uh, what do you think about that debate be- between, you know, and that, that is a real debate. I mean, we've seen this, we've seen Trace Mayer, many people argue about this stuff about, you know. Who is Trace Mayer? Where is he, <laughs> by the way? He, he's, <laughs> he disappeared. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, he's been on the show, you know, and, and he's definitely argued yeah. in, the, in the recent past for financial uh, sovereignty, monetary sovereignty more than monetary and financial yeah. privacy. We need the old Trace Mayer back. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> anyway. what do you think? What do you think about uh, that risk? And I think that will be a risk in the debate when it comes to activation of Taproot. Um, I don't think it's going to be that much of a risk for the activation of Taproot. But I think it is a, let's, let's put it this way. It is a ongoing risk and it will, it will not subside. I mean, we're, gonna, we're still going to have this private issue going forward. We've seen this FinCEN regulation, what they're trying to, to do. In Brazil, we already have something like what FinCEN is proposing. It's already in place here in Brazil. And it was approved or was legislated by an administrative action by the Internal Revenue Service of Brazil. So our, what we call Receita Federal. So we already have this kind of monthly reporting where basically every exchange domiciled in Brazil, they have to hand over their, their database with all their trades and, and social security numbers and everything. It's, it's insane. And it's been in place since last year. I think it was October. No, the year before. I think it was 2019 already. But I think this is... Uh, if we take a step back and try to look at it from a more philosophical standpoint... That's the issue, perhaps, of this century, privacy. I mean, we all have the sound arguments for liberty, although not everyone agrees, of course, but I think there's uh, intellectual force for the liberty-minded people. So we we have arguments, we have a lot of people that uh, support the idea of liberty and defend liberty, but in terms of privacy, not so much. Even from libertarians or anarcho-capitalists or people that defend liberty, privacy seems to be not a not. They don't hold it in well regards, and I think they should, and I think we all should. But I don't think, from a philosophical standpoint, we're ready to take this battle head on. This is a more negative note from me, but I think it's. We have a lot of work to do from a uh, intellectual perspective to defend privacy better. What do you think about uh, Eric Voorhees' recent uh, shape shift shift back to no KYC? I think that's the, the way to go. I mean, why should you take a lot of risk, personal risk, uh, company risk, entrepreneurial risk, even your own uh, personal safety risk? With this kind of businesses where you see the regulators encroaching more and more, it's better to not even have to discuss with them should I or should I or should I or should or shouldn't I. It doesn't really matter. When you have a decentralized system, you just can't. 
So it's much better to just say, I can't, then you have to argue and see how it goes and how it perhaps is decided on the courts. So I, I think that's a perhaps a home run by him. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's he's done quite well in, in business and in Bitcoin and crypto, no doubt. Um, I know many disagree with him on Segwit2x. Uh, certainly, on the show, uh, you challenged him. I remember he was a guest, and uh, and you were right. You were right that it didn't uh, didn't activate. Um, it, you know, didn't even come close, really. And um, that's probably a big disagreement from us still with him. But you know, at the end of the day. I do agree with a lot of his libertarian philosophy, and the uh, the strategy, as I understand, is still just Ethereum and ERC twenty uh, for now. And of course, that will include wrapped Bitcoin. But I'm not quite sure how they're going to. Fi- I read the blog post, but I'm still not quite sure how they're going to do that with unwrapped Bitcoin and be a efficiently running exchange where they're really not. They're still keep that. Position where they're just tying into DEXs and they're uh, they're you know they're a tech company and not a financial intermediary. But I guess I guess we'll see. Yeah, I mean the, that's that's the trade-off we have nowadays with the current state of technology. We use decentralized uh, alternatives in detriment to speed, efficiency, and so on. So, but that's right now that's the the trade-off, and I think it's. Uh, People might choose this more and more. Any other things exciting you about Bitcoin in light of uh, the craziness where we sit today? Um, the hype around blockchain seems to have subsided as well, doesn't it? Yeah, that's a, that excites you. Uh, in a way, it does, because uh, I like when people look at the fundamentals and they understand where the real utility lies. Yeah. And in, in my opinion, it, it always was with Bitcoin as the digital, uh, uncensorable asset in the 21st century, in the age of the internet. I think this is its main utility and it's it's being more and more perceived as such now. Blockchain, well, I think there's a lot of room to to work uh, before we can have some, let's say, real-world applications at scale solving uh, world problems. I don't think we're there yet for uh, other blockchain applications, but I think we will have, but not as as of yet. And the, well, we have DeFi. There's a, there's a lot of uh, enthusiasm around DeFi and the whole DeFi movement. I think they already call this a movement. I think it's a very experimental technology. I don't think you can say you can really store value or have investments in this kind of uh, crypto networks. Not yet, but I think it's fun to play, not to invest your money seriously. Yeah, that's definitely my take. And I think you said, you know, we're not, we, we might get there, not there yet. I mean, I'm, I'm not even sure at this point if we will get there. Uh, and that's probably one of the things that I would say over the course of this podcast, I've changed most, even closer to your position. I still remember, you know, user or uh, listeners might remember the first episodes we had weren't 
even episodes. They were just me uh, narrating different articles about crypto and Bitcoin and 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 blockchain. Mm-hmm. And I was very open to that, uh, you know, sort of uh, big tent libertarian. Uh, non-Bitcoin maximalist. It wasn't even the term that we use uh, that I was thinking at the beginning. Um, and you are a Bitcoin maximalist on the show and I've definitely moved uh, more towards your position. Uh, sounds like you might have budged a little bit towards mine. But um, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not even seeing one, man. I mean, I, I see, I see stablecoins uh, that are a huge volume on Ethereum, like, right? Like even more, like you know, 40-50% transaction value on Ethereum, which is pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, you have US dollar uh, Tether. It's it's issued on Ethereum, not just on Ethereum, but it's uh, one of the main yeah. places of issuance is on the Ethereum network. Yeah, and that might be something, you know, but again, uh, what's the value of that backing and is it is it going to ever be clear? And, you know, the Tether's genesis is more tainted than anything else, I, I think. But yeah, but I mean, the market has seemed to gotten past that. Like they have many things in crypto, so we'll see. But yeah, I, I uh, I'm more bullish than ever on Bitcoin. I'm probably I don't know if I'd say bearish, but just more uninterested than ever on anything else. So that's an interesting, interesting change, probably. Yeah, yeah. I think the whole world is kind of less uh, bullish on blockchain in general because. There was so much hype and so much, oh, the, the, in the future it's going to be like this uh, and these applications and it's going to revolutionize this uh, sector or this area of the economy. And in the end, when you, when, you went, when, when you went really down at the micro level and tried to understand, okay, but is there anything here really? And there wasn't. There just wasn't. There was some development, some ideas, but practical solutions for companies, enterprise solutions, and so on. Not so much. And we haven't we haven't talked about uh, Ripple, but it is also rallying unbelievably. Even Ripple is rallying in the past days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, XRP, that, not Ripple. Uh, XRP, right, right. Like the distinction matters, right? But. Uh, <laughs> I, I saw your tweets like whenever it was at its low. You're, what was it like twenty cents? You're like it's still twenty cents above its fair value. <laughs> that's that still is my take. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. That's that's the one thing though. Uh, it's certainly not with Ripple, but like with in general, which I never. I've said it before on the show, but like it very much saddens me if there's like Bitcoiners or hardcore Bitcoiners that would champion the SEC for taking actions against any altcoin because I'm a very big fan of caveat emptor, you know, I mean, you know, the old Latin way, you know, I mean, let the buyer beware. And um, I I just, I'm a big fan of that. And like being bailed out by, you know, the nanny state or whatever, just does not appeal to me in any shape or form. So uh, fully agree with Ripple. I mean, again, let the buyer beware. Yeah, it's clearly security under today's rules. But, um, you know, know, whether it's talking Ripple, Ethereum, uh, whatever, I mean, like you said, I'm keen to see how the experiments will work. Uh, maybe it's irrational in today's financial world to expect that any of those experiments like will truly have wings where they can take off. I don't know. Bitcoin seems to be seems to be beyond the control of any nation state. You know, if one nation state clamps down, the others will benefit uh, beyond that nation state's clamping down. So, like, you know, it, definitely Bitcoin super bullish. But I mean, I, I just I still. It just, it, I have a little bit of an allergic reaction if I hear a Bitcoiner, you know, uh, championing 
the SEC, you know, to take down yep. another potentially, you know, at least leg up technology. But uh, obviously, I've, I've nothing good to say about Ripple the way that, like, like the way it's been done and the way it's just obviously not a true decentralized protocol. Uh, anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> and and then as well, back to the blockchain hype, just hilarious. I mean, again, you know, MicroStrategy, someone like Michael Saylor, I think he, his, I don't know the exact number, I don't want to misquote it. It's at least 150% that their stock has rallied above the underlying value of the Bitcoin that they, yeah. <laughs> that they bought. So they have, they have turned themselves into a blockchain company or at least a Bitcoin uh, treasury company. Uh, giving investors uh, interesting exposure. Yeah, and I I, I just got a got a very interesting uh, hedge tip for anyone holding Bitcoin is to buy put some micro micro strategy because I mean it's yeah. if Bitcoin falls you can benefit from that. I'm sure micro strategy will also crash. <laughs> Not financial advice, of course, which we don't give on this podcast. Not financial advice. Or never. use Deribit, and I have no relationship with them uh, at all. But yeah, good. Uh, that's a good point. Never thought about that, actually, as a hedge. The, the cost of these bear markets is usually worth it in the end, as we've seen with Bitcoin again and again. So, uh, you know, buy and hold is still a good strategy uh, as well. Uh, listen, I know... Uh, we, we've uh, covered a lot on the economy here, a little bit on Bitcoin. Um, you know, as we look forward here to 2021, you think it's going to be a better year? You optimistic, or uh, are we still are we still on the precipice of more craziness? Well, given the last three days, <laughs> <laughs> I expect anything. <laughs> yeah, truly unbelievable, truly unbelievable. Um, I just want to say a couple more things. I get your thoughts as well, Fernando. Uh, you know, I, I know that, uh, as I said, been a more of a, a snail's pace last year, uh, doing different things, working on this uh, monetary base project as well. I uh, hope to maybe be do, doing more than just podcasting. I know I haven't been doing that too much, but um, uh, yeah, maybe some other content creation. Uh, definitely want to be developing what we've been doing with the monetary base much, much further for. Uh, some analysis and people that are interested in definitely, you know, making the proper comparisons with Bitcoin. So, you know, let me know if you have any questions there or interested in uh, learning more. Um, but also I want to say, you know, I'll probably be doing more broader stuff, you know, Fernando uh, with his Portuguese YouTube channel, which is doing fantastic uh, is, uh, you know, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Fernando, but you're speaking less about Bitcoin these days and more and more about kind of how we started the show back to the macro, back to the basics. Correct. Um, that we've been, you know, so uh, so interested in for all these years. And and, uh, and again, really <laughs> don't want to say it, but it almost seems like it's coming to a head. It's coming to that point. And um, so, so I'm going to be doing more of that as well. And I, many of you know, obviously it's crazy around the world. We're talking about, you know, Europe, Brazil, America, of course, but and it's craziness in Hong Kong, human rights violations all over the world. I mean, there's so many issues going on, but the stuff that's going on in uh, Belarus in particular, which uh, Fernando and I had uh, a friend of mine we talked about uh, over the summer, some of this stuff, it's kind of in hiatus mode at the moment in Belarus um, for those that are interested or 
just want an update. But um, definitely there'll probably be some changes there. But unfortunately, I think still staying in Putin's orbit. Um, although at least an independent nation, it seems. But we'll see how this protest, they probably will kick up again in the spring. And, uh, you know, yeah, the world is, is not at rest and um, like it's ever been at rest. But, um, you know, the, this stuff is really personal to me. You know, obviously I know not many people thinking about the satellite former Soviet Union countries, but another thing that's coming up here uh, is, you know, we're at the start of 2021, the start of 2022 or 2022, I should say in general, that is, uh, that's a hundred year anniversary of the Soviet Union. And of course the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, but uh, there's one Vladimir Vladimir Putin that would uh, love to uh, have the power restored and the dominance restored of the Soviet Union, no doubt. And uh, so I don't know, I'm just, I'm following that closely. Uh, I've been following it. It's definitely an interest of mine for a long time. I was gonna go into maybe some more stories regarding uh, you know, comparing even what happened at the Capitol to, you know, something that I experienced in Latvia. There was a big protest rally that was even in the, the parliament building was like stoned in Latvia and, you know, rocks were thrown, windows were broken in the start of 2009. Uh, you know, the near IMF devaluation that occurred. There's a lot of stuff that's been interesting in the post-Soviet uh, days that I've been experiencing. And yeah, unfortunately, a lot of other people in Ukraine, Belarus and Russia themselves are experiencing a lot of this. So I want to keep following a lot of that. I think that part of the world is interesting to me and I certainly want to keep up with Fernando on uh, Brazil with those economic things. And uh, having said all that, there's a lot of good books. I do want to leave you guys with something, uh, something um, tangible. And I'm reading a couple interesting spy books, which are actually uh, another interest of mine for a long, long time about this, this sort of part of the world, obviously old Cold War espionage stuff. But there are some really good books, in particular, two really good spy books that came out in the last year or two. Uh, one is called Russians Among Us. It's very detailed about the historical, um, the historical illegals, as they're called, literally the deep, long-term deep spies, uh, Soviet spies that uh, they, there was a swap done for actually other Russian spies that the US and the uh, the Brits wanted in 2010. But um, these, some of these spies were deep undercover in the US and Canada back to like the 80s. It covers all that and it goes into how, you know, the Putin regime and basically, uh, basically Putin, I, I, I say Putin. I mean, I, Russians get a bad name when you talk about Russia. It's, it's just Putin and his gang of thieves. But um, the way, you know, all the misinformation with what was going on in the US, whatever, that's a direct line of their, you know, Russians might not be able, I, I was actually talking to a Russian friend, like they, they might not be able to do a lot, but they can, they can tango with any world power when it comes to espionage and subversion. And that's, that's what they've been doing. That's what the, you know, the 2016, uh, all the social media disruption that they did, that was what that was all about. And even before that, they started that after the Maidan revolution in Ukraine, which I was at, Sochi Olympics, um, when, you know, and, and when they went into uh, to Crimea, all of that, they started to do this subversion, this sort of deep state social media control, fake social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, what have you. Uh, there's a long history of that. I really encourage, if you're interested in that, read some books. I do it all the time, happy to chat about it as well. But I think that um, 
you know, ironically, we're right back where we started. I mean, the Soviet Union uh, dissolved 30 years ago, unbelievably. Um, I think we're going to have more talk about the 100 year anniversary of the Soviet Union, which our hero, uh, Ludwig von Mises, actually predicted in uh, his book, Socialism, that it could never work. He was correct. No one else was. It did take longer, as, as our theme of this show, it took longer than anybody expected to collapse, but it did. But now we have just unfortunately, you know, a gang of thieves that have, have come in place in that in its vacuum. So anyway, Russians Among Us is a super interesting spy book. Also from Russia with blood is another very interesting spy book about Putin's uh, espionage and a lot of the murders that he's unfortunately undertaken uh, against, uh, against the Western world. And again, I'm not, um, this is not like America versus Russia, whatever, you know, I have family ties in Latvia and I'm here in Eastern Europe. It's just about human rights and freedom, you know, in the 21st century. And uh, I think Bitcoin will be a part of it. But as Satoshi said, I think in his early, earliest of blog posts, it's not going to be the only thing, uh, you know, something like Bitcoin is going to solve the political problems. So we're seeing it. I just never could have predicted the pandemic would bring this stuff about. But, you know, this stuff is just, it's coming back in a fierce way stuff that like my father was worried about, stuff that, uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, your father was worried about, Fernando, and like people's grandfathers, this stuff. Uh, it's unbelievable. So I'm going to keep reading a lot of those types of books as well. Uh, talk about those as well outside of crypto and Bitcoin as time goes on. So hopefully you can stick with me for that and Fernando as well. Um, another one, Spy and a Trader is a very good one. That's an old one, but it's about very interesting uh, one of the more famous uh, spy evacuations from the Soviet Union in the 80s. What about spy movies? Since you're a spy genre buff, what about spy movies? Yeah, uh, there's a lot of good ones. I mean, I like, uh, obviously, uh, The Sting is is a classic good one. Uh, French Connections, good one. The Day of the Jackal, have you watched it? Uh, is that a newer or older one? Uh, there was, uh, they, they they had the old one was in the 70s and the new one I think was with Bruce Willis, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> nice. I'm going to check that one out. Well, since you, you're giving out book uh, recommendations, let me give my recommendations. Not a, a novel, but it reads like a novel. It's the, it's the old one, old, from 2010 it was published about the 2008 financial crisis called The Big Short by Michael Lewis, which also they, they did a movie based on the book. Of course, the book is much more detailed. So if you hadn't, if you haven't read or watched, I would advise you to watch the movie first and then read the book. Otherwise, you'll be disappointed by the movie, of course. But it's, I mean, why am I recommending this now? Because I just, I finished reading it. I had watched the movie already, I think over 10 or 12 times. And the book was sitting here on my bookshelf and I never, never picked it up. And I decided now doing it during Christmas and New Year's, I took some days off and I read it. And it's amazing because it reads a lot similar to what we are living right now. What the, the things we were discussing, how people lose sight of uh, sanity, of they get uh, exuberant, they forgot the, the fundamental, they forget the fundamentals. I mean, they just don't care. And the people trying to 
to shed some light on the matters and see, and, and see things through. I'd say the people that try to have some common sense, they are ridiculed. And I'm, I'm, I am seeing this myself every single day on Twitter, on the financial markets. I mean, the people that try to bring some common sense to, <laughs> to everyone else is just uh, ridiculed or ignored as a naysayer, perma bear or whatever. So I think it's a very interesting read for our current times. Yeah, Michael Lewis, great author. Um, I'm sure many have heard of him, you know, Moneyball, uh, Flash Boys, a lot of very, very good books. Flash Boys is another really good one. Uh, definitely recommend uh, as far as, you know, the intricacies of the financial markets. Any other spy movies? <laughs> no, I'm not a very good with spy movies or books. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about it. You know, it's a typical American sort of view of Latin America is like the CIA comes in, comes in you know, messes up a, a regime and then instills their, you know, their puppet. Is that like something that people in Latin America care about at all or is that just not really? They do. They do a lot. I mean, most of the, especially the leftists, they view the USA as imperialist, as an imperialist power that does exactly what you just described. Come in, try to uh, agitate or to install a puppet or something like this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is it uh, is it like getting worse in, li in light of this pandemic or is, like, is, it, is it brought up, is it evoked? Or is nah, it just a constant sort of? No, I don't think it's not, so. It's not. It's not on people's I minds. So. I think it's more historical. It's not current. I think it's more historical, not current. Yeah, unlike the the problems right and left with the current regime and and the people that feel uh, disenfranchised with the current regime in the U.S. It's not like people are really yeah going against that yeah. down in Latin America. Really, like okay, that's interesting. So that's it. Uh, definitely, we'll have a variety of. Topics, I think, just besides crypto as move forward with, uh, with, with what I'm doing with content. Fernando's got a great YouTube channel. I'm sure he'll come back to uh, guest host a couple shows as well. But um, yeah, having said all that, uh, you never quite know <laughs> when the bottom will be in. But right now, everything is topping. So be careful out there. Uh, doesn't seem like markets should be screaming to all-time highs. Be careful with your Bitcoin. Be safe, be well, be healthy, and uh, wishing you all the best in 2021, dear listener. And uh, yeah, for those that have been along for the long haul with us, thank you very much for, for listening. Really appreciate it and uh, hope to bring you better, uh, even better content in the future. Fernando, you're gonna... Oh God, I gotta say something to you too. You're gonna just can't sit you say, silence there. Can't you say? Can't you say one thing? <laughs> <laughs> Anything to add there, buddy? Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Bueller. recompose. <laughs> I'm not cutting this part. Don't, please don't. People will understand how it feels like doing a podcast with you. Just so you guys, your listeners, you know, right now I'm looking at my screen where we are recording this on the website and it says here the title of this podcast is Fernando Fool. So just this is the kind of thing that I have to put up with. Come on, man. Uh, we we got to keep it above board here. I'm always very kind to you. Always very kind. But I mean, no, just want to say... 
Congratulations for the four-year anniversary of Crypto Voices, and I think you guys you should keep doing it, and perhaps even uh, bring back the reading of articles. I know people enjoy this a lot, especially nowadays that podcasting is in vogue, so much in vogue, even more than a year ago. Yeah. So congrats on the four-year anniversary, and it's been a privilege and a pleasure to be part of it not in whole but at least part of it so thanks for inviting me to to come on this journey it's been very 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 fun my pleasure my friend thank you very much for uh, all you do as well keep it up and uh it's always a pleasure so never a chore take care my friend happy new year and uh talk to you soon take care man happy new year bye